I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by kick-ass jeans company, Ma and Bo. I'm sorry for the delay in releasing this episode. My husband and I have officially entered into our busy season with our business, and it's been really tough carving out time for the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging in there and being patient. The case I'm covering in this episode is one that I've been aware of since I was in high school. I had to sit through four hours of Saturday school back in 1996 and needed something to keep my mind occupied. This was before cell phones became popular. So I grabbed a book titled Smoked, A True Story About the Kids Next Door, and brought it with me. The book, authored by Leon Bing, was from my mom's collection. That particular Saturday flew by because I became so entrenched in the book. I've thought about this case often since I read the book over 20 years ago. My mom, Terry, is the one who suggested that I cover this case on the podcast. So, without further delay, let's get into the case. South Pasadena High School, commonly referred to as South Pass High School, was founded in 1907. 
The school was ranked 598th in the national school rankings in 2018 and 103rd in California, earning it a silver medal. According to greatschools.org, South Pass High School stands out academically with a 93% graduation rate, 79% of graduates meeting requirements for the University of California and California State Schools, an average SAT score of 1720, an SAT college readiness rate of 84%, and 39% student participation in AP courses. All of these stats are well above average for the country. The high school earned a 10 out of 10 for college readiness, test scores, and advanced courses compared to other high schools in California. Notable alumni of South Pass High School include actress Hilary Swank and Dr. George Hodel, who was accused of committing several murders, including that of Elizabeth Short, better known as the Black Dahlia. The city of Pasadena is located in Southern California, within Los Angeles County, about a 15-minute drive from downtown L.A., Pasadena was incorporated in 1874 and quickly became a booming resort town until the Great Depression of 1929, when business decreased dramatically. The economy received a welcome boost during the Second World War, as companies such as NASA and Amron International began setting up shop in the city to contribute to the war effort in the Pacific. NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, remains the top employer in Pasadena followed by Kaiser Permanente, California Institute of Technology, Huntington Hospital, Pasadena Unified School District, AT&T, and the city of Pasadena. On a personal note, my husband's grandfather worked as a scientist for many years at JPL. Pasadena is a highly desirable place to live, offering some pricey and well-known private schools. The city boasts many beautiful, historic homes and buildings, and is also home to the famous Rose Bowl football stadium. The Rose Bowl stadium has been holding wildly popular flea markets since 1967. These flea markets draw tens of thousands of visitors from all over Southern California and beyond. The stadium is most famous for hosting the Tournament of Roses Parade and the Rose Bowl game every January. William Wrigley Jr., maker of Wrigley's Chewing Gum and former owner of the Chicago Cubs, lived in Pasadena. His home was gifted to the city to serve as the permanent headquarters for the Rose Parade. The home of James Gamble's son, of Procter & Gamble, is also a historic landmark in Pasadena. The first Bush Gardens, established by Budweiser brewer Adolphus Bush, is located in Pasadena. The city also has a large, non-indigenous population of naturalized parrots that can often be seen flying around the city. I worked in Pasadena at one point and would often see the birds flying around the town. Notable people from Pasadena include General George S. Patton, actress Sally Field, astronomer Edwin Hubble, namesake of the Hubble Telescope, actor George Reeves, who played Superman on the TV show, Hall of Fame baseball player Jackie Robinson, and his brother Mac, who won a silver medal in the 200-meter race during the 1936 Olympics. Musicians from the legendary rock band Van Halen, David Lee Roth, and brothers Eddie and Alex Van Halen are also from Pasadena. Three of the group members met at Pasadena City College. During the 1980s, Pasadena saw a steep rise in gang activity and violence, 
as crack cocaine was introduced to the streets. Homicides increased to an average of over 30 per year. The violence came to a head on Halloween of 1993 when six teenage boys were shot by gang members in a case of mistaken identity. The gangsters were looking for retaliation after one of their own members had been shot earlier in the day. As they saw a group of people walking along the sidewalk, they mistook them for rival gang members and opened fire. The group were actually a bunch of teenagers and some adults who were just out trick-or-treating for the evening. Three of the six boys who were shot died. The public outrage was such that a police crackdown on gang violence went into effect, greatly reducing violent crime in Pasadena. Two and a half years before the trick-or-treaters were shot, in what would be called the Halloween Massacre, another triple murder occurred in an exclusive area of Pasadena, under completely different circumstances. Fairlawn Way, in the affluent Annandale section of Pasadena, was home to pathologists Linda McCauley and her husband, Michael Koss. Both Michael and Linda worked at County USC Medical Center. Houses in Annandale reportedly started at a half a million dollars in the late 1980s, well above the reported average home price of $113,000 at the time. Linda and her husband purchased the Fairlawn home for $650,000, Moving there from South Pasadena in 1989, Linda's daughter Catherine, who went by Kathy, was attending South Pass High School when the family moved to Pasadena. Kathy continued to attend South Pass so she could graduate with her friends in the spring of 1991. Kathy's biological father was a Marine, stationed in Bangkok, Thailand at the time. Kathy had just celebrated her 18th birthday on Valentine's Day of 1991. In a situation most teenagers only dream of, Kathy was allowed to reside in the pool house behind the family residence, which everyone referred to as Kathy's home. This was a perfect place for Kathy and her friends to party, and they partied a lot. On Friday, March 22nd of 1991, at about 2.30 in the morning, Pasadena police received a call asking them to do a welfare check at the home, located on the 1300th block of Fairlawn Way. Officers arrived around 18 minutes later and knocked on the door. No answer. Officers entered the main house and searched all of the rooms. They found no one. Then, they entered the pool house where Kathy resided. In the bedroom, they found three young women. All had been murdered, killed by shotgun blasts to their heads. Kathy McCauley was laying on the floor, leaning against the stereo. Her best friend, Heather Goodwin, age 18, was lying half on and half off Kathy's queen-sized bed. Lying next to Heather was Danae Palermo, 17 years old. Pasadena homicide detective Michael Corpel called the scene, quote, beyond imagination, and said it was, quote, the worst I've ever encountered. There were over 30 empty beer cans and an empty bottle of whiskey scattered around the pool house as well as dirty dishes in the sink. No one else was found in the home. As police began waking up neighbors to find out if anyone heard anything, they spoke with Wayne and Donna Lee Bovey, who lived up the hill from Kathy. The Bovey said there had been noise, mostly from the stereo, coming from the house all night. Wayne went out to the balcony to yell to the teenagers to be quiet, at which time he heard a male say, quote, Okay, dude, bring the gun. 
and saw a young male, obviously drunk, staggering across the patio of the Macaulay Coss home. Then, he heard a female voice say, shh, and then the stereo was turned down. The Bovies went back to bed at that time. Although violent crime had sharply increased in Pasadena over the past decade, it was far removed from the areas of the city like the posh Annandale neighborhood. Police reviewed the murder scene. All three women were fully clothed, and there was no sign of a struggle from any of them. This led investigators to believe that none of the victims had been sexually assaulted and that they had known the killer or killers. The Mercedes-Benz belonging to Kathy's mother and stepfather was missing. Police would learn that Linda and Michael were in Chicago for a conference and had been gone for five days. Late in the evening on Friday, March 22nd, 900 miles north of Pasadena, Salem, Oregon police received a call informing them that two male teenagers, wanted for murder in California, were at a local Greyhound bus station. When officers arrived at the bus station, they found 16-year-old David Atkins and 17-year-old Bert Hebrock, who went by his middle name of Vinny. The Mercedes they had taken from the crime scene, which belonged to Kathy's parents, was located in the bus station parking lot. The boys had driven to Salem because Adkins had relatives there. After they arrived in Salem, Adkins called a family member, said he was in town, and explained what happened. The family member promptly called the Salem Police Department, who arrested the two without incident. Back in Pasadena, police were starting to unravel what happened on the night of the murders. They were beginning to find out more about the victims. The three had met in junior high school and remained friends, despite all of them moving to different cities. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kathy McCauley was a senior at South Pass High School, where she was described as a, quote, unremarkable student. Allowed to live in the pool house behind the family home, Kathy was often left unsupervised. Although she was the only one of the victims enrolled at South Pass High School, she had not attended many classes in the past three weeks. The family's next-door neighbor, Mark Russick, said Kathy was a very friendly young woman who had just fallen into the wrong crowd. He said, quote, Why a girl that comes from a professional family like this, why she should get involved with some of the weeds of humanity, I just don't understand it. She was in bad company for the moment which she may have gotten past, but this tragedy just struck before she outlived it. Heather Goodwin lived in South Pass until 1989, when her parents moved to the San Marino area of Pasadena, about three miles east of South Pass. Heather remained at South Pass High School, but was transferred to an alternative program due to truancy issues. She eventually dropped out of the alternative school and took a job at a closed time store. She and Kathy had known each other since they were in the third grade. Danae Palermo lived in South Pass as well. Her parents divorced when she was in junior high school, where she met Kathy and Heather. 
She split time at her mother's home in South Pass and her father's home in Alhambra. Also having problems in school, Danae dropped out but got her GED. At the time of her murder, she had a job as a sales clerk at a Brookstone store and was supporting herself while taking classes at nearby Glendale Community College. Police learned that although Danae had been friends with Kathy and Heather for years, she had slowly started to drift away from them and the party scene. A friend who worked at Brookstone with Danae, named Shane Adams, said, quote, I talked to her five minutes before she went to the party. She said she didn't really want to go. She didn't like the people that much, but she was going because they were old friends. Adkins and Hebrock waived extradition to California. Police learned that not only were the two known to the three victims, but Adkins had been Kathy's on-again, off-again boyfriend for the past several years. Police also learned that the two boys had been living in the pool house with Kathy for weeks, without her parents' knowledge. Unlike the three female victims, the perpetrators did not grow up in privileged environments. Adkins, who was a year behind Kathy in school, was described as an outlaw type who attracted a lot of girls. He apparently took advantage of this as different girls gave him money, did his homework, drove him places, and bought him gifts. Some saw Atkins as a lost soul who just needed someone to help him. An ex-girlfriend said of Atkins, quote, Dave was somebody who really wanted to get out of the bad part of his life, but it had much too strong a hold on him. Atkins lived with his mother, Pam Descala, who was a waitress. Even before he became a teenager, Adkins had a reputation of being one of the, quote, bad boys, including going through a skinhead phase where he shaved his head and walked around in camouflage and combat boots. In seventh grade, Adkins met eighth grader Kathy McCauley. The two began a relationship that would be a roller coaster ride for the next several years. Adkins also began dealing drugs during this time. During eighth grade, Adkins and Hebrock were caught burglarizing an apartment a block away from the police department. When caught, Adkins claimed he was helping a friend move out of his ex-girlfriend's place. Neither the police nor the court bought his story. Hebrock received probation, but Adkins was sentenced to six months at Boys Republic, a private school for troubled boys located in Chino, California. Founded in 1907, Boys Republic's most famous resident was actor Steve McQueen, who regularly donated clothing and supplies to the school after he got into acting. For a few months during his 8th grade year, Atkins seemed like he was starting to make some positive changes in his life after his English teacher began mentoring him. Unfortunately, his mother decided to move to Oregon to be near family, taking her son with her. Atkins eventually returned to California in the fall of 1990, enrolling in South Pass High School. He would eventually end up in the alternative school that Heather attended. Kathy's friends, particularly Heather, did not like Adkins and certainly didn't like their friend dating him. One of Kathy's friends said, quote, he was just using her. She bought him anything he wanted, gave him a place to stay. We told her to stay away from him, but she never listened to anybody. Heather disliked Adkins, but she absolutely could not stand Hebrock. Friends said that just being in the same room as Hebrock was enough to make her angry. A friend, Peggy Shirtleff, said, quote, She'd always have some smart, sarcastic comment, like she'd say, you know, you're the ugliest two-word obscenity I've ever seen in my life. To further complicate matters, Adkins' former girlfriend, Michelle Sanford, was apparently trying to get back together with Adkins. 
Rumors started flying around the school, and Kathy couldn't take the taunting from people any longer. Kathy and Michelle got into a fight at a party, which somehow settled the matter. Adkins and Kathy were exclusive after that point. Exclusive or not, the relationship between the two was anything but healthy. Kathy was described as someone who was generous with money and gifts and loved to please others. Adkins took advantage of these qualities. Peggy Shirtliff said, quote, Whenever I talked to Dave, me and him alone, he'd just talk bad about her. He used to say how he hated her. You could see it coming with Kathy and Dave, something bad. Despite talking bad behind her back, Adkins took full advantage of Kathy's hospitality, including staying in the pool house with her. Neighbors on Fairlawn Way told police they often saw Adkins coming into the back entrance of the home on his moped, which actually belonged to Kathy. Hebrock's mother, Faye Hebrock, worked as a cocktail waitress. They lived with Vinny's father, Burton, who worked as a tow truck driver. Vinny and his family moved around to different low-rent homes in the San Gabriel Valley until Hebrock was eight years old. At that time, Hebrock's father moved to Florida, taking his son with him. A friend of the family said, quote, The father came home one day and said he was in trouble and he was going to take the kid and leave town. Hebrock stayed with his father in Florida for five years. The friend said, quote, I get a call from him in Florida, saying, could I locate his mom? He said his dad had died of an expired heart. The white corpsicles had overtaken the red corpsicles. After his father's death, Hebrock came back to California. He moved in with his mother, his older sister, Tabitha, and Tabitha's husband in a small apartment above an electrician's shop. Within a year, Hebrock had dropped out of school at the age of 14. He would later admit to police that he was illiterate. He couldn't read much more than the word the. Acquaintances said he had no direction. He would often sit on the steps of the public library during the day, watching the alternative school across the street, waiting for Atkins to get out of school. The family friend said, quote, He didn't seem to have any independent course of action, but to sit around and wait for Dave, and go out and get into trouble. He did get a job at a service station for a short time, but was fired for not showing up to work. Other students at South Pass High School described Adkins and Hebrock as bullies who did drugs, skipped school, and had criminal records. One said of the pair, quote, I knew that something would happen to them, but I still can't imagine them shooting someone. In February of 1991, one month before the murders, Adkins and Hebrock were arrested for attempted burglary. They were released to the care of their mothers, but both expected to face jail time once they went to court. Shortly before the murders, Adkins and Hebrock, riding Kathy's moped, stole a purse from an elderly woman in the neighborhood. When questioned by police after the murders, Hebrock told them about the robbery, quote, I have no excuse, I just did it. Hebrock told investigators that the group's lives had become an extended party, and the location for the party was Kathy's apartment. He told them, quote, When the party gets wild, we crash there. When we get too drunk to go home or whatever. After questioning Adkins and Hebrock about the triple homicide, police were beginning to piece together the events leading up to the brutal murders. But police knew they needed more than statements from the two perpetrators. Ideally, some type of corroboration from someone who was not facing prison time. Enter the sixth member of the group. 
Kale Matthew Fiedler was from El Sereno, California, about four miles southwest of South Pasadena. During his sophomore year, he moved to South Pass to live with his grandmother, enrolling in South Pass High School. He was soon transferred to the alternative school, where he met Adkins and Heather Goodwin. Kale had previously been arrested for burglary and admitted that he had been involved with Hebrock and Adkins in other similar crimes. When police learned that Kale had been present at the murders, he was originally considered a suspect along with Adkins and Hebrock. Further investigation showed that although he was present during the murders, he did not participate. Kale's statements gave investigators a much clearer vision of the events that occurred on March 21st and 22nd. According to Kale, on the afternoon of March 21st, Kathy picked up Kale and Danae at their homes. They stopped at a liquor store and bought a case of beer and some whiskey. Although Kale was only 16 years old, he looked a lot older and was able to buy alcohol easily. Adkins and Hebrock were already at the pool house when Kathy pulled in. Heather would have come over sometime during the afternoon. The six teenagers smoked weed and took LSD. By early evening, the beer and whiskey were gone. Kathy, Kale, and Adkins left in Kathy's car to get more alcohol. They also stopped at a fast food restaurant. Kale said he was so drunk that he spilled his food on himself. Back at the pool house, things were not going well. According to Hebrock's statement, he got into an argument with Heather and Danae, and it turned physical. Hebrock said the argument began when he tried to kiss Danae. He said the women gave him a scratch on his neck and a bruise on his arm. What really made him mad, Hebrock said, was when Heather kicked him in the groin. After about an hour, when the others got back with the alcohol, the mood of the party had changed for the worse, but they continued drinking. Kale said that Heather and Danae were lying on Kathy's bed. Kale was sitting next to them on the bed and ended up falling asleep. He did remember hearing Adkins and Hebrock leaving the room at one point. Hebrock told investigators that this was when Adkins told him to go into the main house and get Michael Koss's 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun which he used to hunt duck and pheasants. Hebrock said that Adkins told him he was just going to scare Kathy. When they got back to the pool house, Kathy, the only one in the room who was still conscious, stood up and looked at Adkins holding the gun. Hebrock said, quote, She looked dead at Dave. She thought we were kidding. Hebrock said Adkins shoved the shotgun into his hands, causing it to go off, killing Kathy. Hebrock said that Heather woke up from the sound of the shotgun and tried to get out through the door, but Adkins took the gun back from him and threw Heather back on the bed. Hebrock said, quote, He walked up to her, put the gun to her head, and shot her. And he walked up to Danae and shot her. Neither of them said a word between the gunshots. Nobody said nothing. It was so quiet. All you could hear is the music. The second blast, the one that killed Heather, woke Kale up. He sat up just in time to see Atkins shoot Danae, who was right next to him. He said, quote, I looked over and saw Dave pull the trigger. He shot Danae just as I looked over. I stayed exactly as I was. Dave and Vinny were both saying, quote, Are you with us? Are you down? Now Atkins was pointing the shotgun at Kale, not really thinking he had much of a choice. Kale told Atkins that he was with them. Kale said the police would be arriving shortly and they needed to get out of there. 
Hebrock and Adkins had clothes in the dryer, so the three of them went into the laundry room. Kale said that Adkins handed the shotgun to him, but he held it with his shirt sleeve so he wouldn't leave his fingerprints on it. While they were getting their clothes out of the dryer, Dave said, quote, Oh my God, I just killed my girlfriend. Vinny said, quote, Yeah, dude, we smoked them all. With no car of their own, Adkins got behind the wheel of Linda McCauley's Mercedes-Benz. They told Kale they were going to Mexico. Kale said, quote, Take me home and I'll cover you guys the best that I can. They dropped Kale off at his dad's house in Alhambra and said to Kale, quote, Don't say anything or you're dead. Instead of Mexico, Adkins and Hebrock headed north toward Oregon, where Adkins had family. The two were arrested later that evening at the Greyhound bus station. Kale said that when he was dropped off, he told his dad everything. He described the murders and told him of the threat he received if he said anything. As a safety precaution, Kale's dad made arrangements for him to fly to his mother's home in Seattle. Before he left, even though it was in the middle of the night, Kale went to talk to Peggy Shirtliff, with whom he was very close. He told her what happened and asked her to do the right thing. Then Kale left. Peggy said of the conversation, quote, I'll never forget the look on his face. He was just stunned. I can't describe it. The first thing he said was, they're all dead. I said, who's dead? He said, Kathy, Danae, Heather. I said, this can't be happening. Peggy knew she had to pick up the phone and make an extremely difficult phone call. She called Heather Goodwin's parents to tell them what she had just heard. Heather's parents immediately called police and asked them to check the house on Fairlawn Way. That welfare check led to the discovery of the three girls' bodies. Before leaving town, Adkins and Hebrock drove the Mercedes into downtown Los Angeles to buy some weed, then took the I-5 north toward Oregon. Hebrock said they stopped at a gas station, where they traded some jewelry, including a charm bracelet with the letter K for gas. When police asked him at which gas station they stopped, Hebrock said, quote, the one with the blue and red sign. Because of his illiteracy, Hebrock could not read the name of the station. The boys threw the shotgun out by a bike path in Grants Pass, Oregon, on the way to Salem. Grants Pass police managed to recover the gun. After they had waived extradition and returned to California, on Monday, March 25th, David Atkins and Vinnie Hebrock were each charged with three counts of murder with special circumstances. I am such a jeans and t-shirt kind of girl. I once asked a friend if I could slap some sequins on my jeans and call them formal enough to wear to her wedding. That didn't go over so well. I know a great pair of jeans when I find them, so let me tell you about my newest jeans obsession. Mott & Bow is a kick-ass jeans company that makes high-quality jeans in their own factory. And let me tell you, these jeans rock. I wore my Mott & Bow jeans to work this week and felt like I was wearing my favorite pair of yoga pants, only better. You know how a high-end pair of yoga pants suck you in in all the right places, but feel comfortable all day long? Yeah, that's what Mott & Bow jeans do. These jeans keep their shape for days. I know because I wear them several times each week without washing them. Don't judge me. Mott & Bow offers different styles and colors of jeans for women and men at such a fair price point. If you're unsure of which size to order, take advantage of Mott & Bow's home try-on program. 
order two pairs of jeans, only pay for one, then return the pair that doesn't fit using the prepaid return label. Trust me, I am a total jeans snob and these have become my new go-to. If you're ready to fall in love with jeans, go to mottenbow.com and use promo code MURDERISH for 15% off for first-time buyers. That's M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com and use MURDERISH for 15% off. On Wednesday, March 27th, Adkins and Hebrock appeared before a municipal judge, Elvira R. Mitchell, who remanded them to the custody of the L.A. Sheriff's Department for trial. Deputy District Attorney Nancy Naftel told Judge Mitchell that she would file a petition to determine whether the two defendants should be tried as adults. If they were tried and convicted of first-degree murder in juvenile court, they could only be incarcerated until they reached the age of 25. In adult court, they could get a maximum of life without parole. There was a public outcry demanding the death penalty due to the severity of the murders and special circumstances. Even so, Pasadena Deputy District Attorney David Disco said that because Atkins and Hebrock were minors when the crimes were committed, they were not eligible for the death penalty. On Tuesday, June 18th, Pasadena Juvenile Court Judge Sandy R. Kriegler ruled that Atkins and Hebrock must be tried as adults due to the severity of the crimes for which they were charged. She said they were not fit to be tried in juvenile court and ordered both to be transferred from juvenile hall to the L.A. County Jail. The following day, Atkins and Hebrock both pleaded not guilty to three counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. A preliminary hearing was held to determine whether there was probable cause to believe that Adkins and Hebrock committed the three murders. In California, the prosecution can either use a grand jury or a preliminary hearing to determine if there is probable cause to go to trial. Most felony trials in California use preliminary hearings rather than grand juries. Dr. James K. Rebe testified that all three victims were shot in the head at close range and that Heather and Danae also had, quote, traumas to the face and hands strongly suggestive of an altercation. This statement was consistent with Hebrock's claim that he got into a physical fight with the girls. Pasadena homicide detective Michael Corpel testified that the shotgun had been shot by others at the party for fun. He testified that the gun had been fired by at least one of the victims in the days leading up to the murders. Corpel also testified that Atkins and Hebrock both confessed to the three murders, and their confessions were recorded. Judge Mitchell concluded that probable cause did exist and ordered the two defendants over to Superior Court. The trial for Adkins and Hebrock began on Monday, July 13th of 1992, a little over a year after the murders. Both of the defense attorneys cited a California State Supreme Court case from 1965 ruling that statements made by one defendant cannot be presented word for word if they are damaging to another defendant in the case. Superior Court Judge J. Michael Byrne decided that because both defendants' statements implicated one another, they would have separate juries but would be tried together. In opening statements, Adkins attorney Stephen Romero challenged both Hebrock's and Kale's versions of the murders, as well as Kale's claim of non-participation in the crime. Romero said his client, 
who had taken LSD the night before, was tricked by police into confessing and was denied legal counsel. He said that Atkins was kissing Kathy while Hebrock got into a physical fight with Heather and Danae, even though Hebrock said the altercation occurred while Kale, Kathy, and Adkins had gone out for more alcohol. Hebrock's attorney, Rickard Santwire, took issue with the claim that Hebrock said, quote, Yeah, dude, we smoked them all. Santwire asked the jury, quote, What if you change one word in there and he said, Yeah, dude, you smoked them all. Both defense attorneys said that Kale was too intoxicated to have remembered the events of the evening. Deputy District Attorney Nancy Naftel had to make two different opening arguments, one for each defendant, in front of their respective juries. She said the prosecution was still unsure of the reasons why Adkins and Hebrock committed the murders. She said, quote, We may or may not be able to establish what the motive was, but motivation is not something I'm required to prove. The prosecution had a strong case against both defendants. Both had confessed to the crimes, and their recorded statements were played in court for the jury. Included in those confessions was Hebrock's statement, quote, I shot somebody who didn't need to be shot for no reason. She never did a thing to me. During Adkins' recorded statement, he said, quote, I took Heather. Then he said he pointed the gun at Danae. When asked where he shot her, he said, quote, in the back, then said, quote, it could have been in the back of the head. He also said, quote, obviously I'm guilty and I've admitted this. Could they throw me in jail for life? The prosecution rested its cases on Friday, July 24th. Defense attorneys on both sides had objected to playing the defendant's recorded confessions in court, saying Adkins and Hebrock weren't told they had the right to refuse to talk to the police. They also claimed that because of their clients' ages, detectives should have done more than just advise them of their rights. Romero further stated that Adkins was not given an opportunity to speak to counsel for over a week after his arrest, and that his confession came from, quote, psychological coercion. The judge overruled the objections, ruling there was no indication that either defendant misunderstood their rights. He ruled the confession tapes admissible. Both defense attorneys grilled Kale during cross-examination, claiming that he was too intoxicated to remember what was said or done, and that his immediately flying to Seattle was evidence of his guilt in the murders. Adkins' jury returned their verdict first. Judge Burns sealed the verdict until Hebrock's jury was done with deliberations to avoid influencing their verdict. Judge Burns said of his decision, quote, I don't want the publicity in Adkins' case to interfere in any way with the deliberations of the other jury. Hebrock's jury reached a verdict, and on Friday, August 14th, both verdicts were read. David Atkins was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, with special circumstances of multiple murders. He faced a maximum sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Vinnie Hebrock was convicted of three counts of second-degree murder, and faced a maximum sentence of 45 years to life, with no parole for at least 25 years. As the juries left the courtroom, members of Adkins' jury, six men and six women, some of them in tears, said the recorded confession clinched their verdict. Most members of Hebrock's jury, consisting of seven women and five men, would not speak to reporters, 
one juror, Marianne Cardella, said the three counts of second-degree murder for Hebrock were reached as a compromise. She said some members wanted a more severe sentence and others wanted to be more lenient. Cardella said, quote, A lot of people were real close-minded from the beginning. They wanted to hang him. She also said that Hebrock's recorded confession was a critical element for his conviction. Stephen Romero, representing Atkins, blamed the police for focusing too quickly on the defendants for the murders and said there were too many inconsistencies in Kale's testimony. Rickard Santwire, Hebrock's attorney, admitted that his client had killed Kathy, but that he should not have been held responsible for the murders of Heather and Danae. Sentencing was scheduled for March of the following year. On Wednesday, March 10th of 1993, Judge Byrne handed down sentences. David Atkins was given the maximum sentence allowed, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Due to the special circumstances, the court would have been directed to impose the maximum penalty allowable by California law. However, since Atkins was a minor at the time of the murders, Judge Byrne was allowed some discretion. He did not give any leniency. He said he did not find any mitigating circumstances to reduce the sentence due to the, quote, systematic way the murders were carried out. Adkins is currently incarcerated at the High Desert State Prison in Susanville, California. Vinny Hebrock was given a sentence of 51 years to life with the possibility of parole after 30 years. He was given three sentences of 15 years to life to run consecutively and another five years for the use of a firearm. An additional year was added to the sentence because his co-defendant also used a firearm. Hebrock is currently incarcerated at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. Homicide detective Michael Corporal, the lead investigator on the case, joined the Pasadena Police Department in 1978. He said he will never forget what he saw at Fairlawn Way that early Friday morning in March of 1991. He said, quote, I still see images of Heather Goodwin. I had girls the same age. I remember arriving at the house and thinking, these girls are the exact same age as my girls. There was a certain satisfaction in solving that case. It was Corporal's interview with Hebrock that broke the case. In the interrogation, he told Hebrock, quote, I need the truth from you, Vinny. The families can't get better until we get the truth. A terrible, terrible thing happened here. Hebrock eventually broke down and confessed to the crimes. Mike Corporal continued his career in law enforcement after Kathy, Heather, and Danae were murdered. He was the lead investigator in the 1993 murders, often referred to as the Halloween Massacre. Corporal helped to secure convictions for the three perpetrators who were all sentenced to death for those murders. Corporal ended up being promoted through the ranks to investigator, sergeant, lieutenant, and commander. He retired in 2011 as deputy police chief. Corporal passed away on July 4th of 2016 at the age of 62. Before his retirement, he had served the Pasadena Police Department for 33 years. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. 
head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, there are many ways you can support it. You can start by hitting the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show easier. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy something. This episode was brought to you by Mott and Bow. I love my Mott and Bow jeans. Use discount code MURDERISH for 15% off your purchase. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com slash murderish where your monthly support could give you access to perks like bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast, discount codes at the merch store, and other cool stuff. If paying a monthly subscription fee isn't your thing, you can also send a one-time donation by going to paypal.me slash murderish podcast. That's paypal.me slash murderish podcast. Any and all support is very much appreciated. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other swaggy stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderish, J-A-M-I, at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Spend quite a bit of time in the commission of this monstrous act. Hi, y'all. I'm Vincent, host of Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime. Each week, we take a thorough look at lesser-known unsolved cases throughout the Lone Star State, hear victims' stories as told by their loved ones, and expert insight from law enforcement and medical professionals. You know, using a hatchet, that's an extremely violent and rageful type of act. The truth is out there somewhere, and you can help us find it. You know, before I die, I want to know who did it. Please join us as we examine forgotten Texas cases. Subscribe and listen to Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, on your favorite podcatcher. There are monsters among us. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.